This is an invasion of grace. It has happened and is happening still through God's people. It's not an invasion that happened once for all, but we are part of extending that invasion of grace into all the world, into all the different parts of the world. Join me in Matthew 1, and I will read the most exciting passage in the entire New Testament. You ready? Verse 1, Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Wow. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Now, if you're, you're going to have a child, think about these names. <laughs> Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let's close in prayer, amen? Yeah. What is this all about? I want to suggest to you that we look at this and we say, you got to be kidding. Do you know, in early church history, I didn't get time to research this any further than I, I would like to have gone a little farther, but there was actually a lot of debate about what gospel should come first. And we would think that John in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, would have been the, the most common vote. It goes back to farthest, it's the most po This actually won overwhelmingly. The church fathers argued that the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew was the most appropriate place to start in letting people know about the life of Jesus. And so I want to look at that today. We're talking about the invasion of to get grace, and today we're talking about God's provision through grace, which grace is, at its core, it means God provides what we can't do, what we don't have. 
We're going to look next week at God's power because grace requires God to God's power to carry out God's promises. And then the third week, we're going to look at God's presence because the only way we can receive and live in grace is if God is with us. And in Jesus, God is with us. Okay, so let's look today at God providing for us. By the way, Christmas, of course, is our culture's biggest secular holiday, as well as being what we would call maybe a religious holiday. Its origin and the true meaning is about Christ, but let's be honest. Millions celebrate Christmas very festively and very big and scarcely, if at all, give any reference to Christ, right? I mean, illustrate this. If you're shopping, you hear the music playing over the, over the speaker, and you can hear the silly, Grandma got run over by a reindeer, followed by For Him doing It's a Strange Way to Save the World, a very distinctively Christian song, followed by Madonna singing the terrible Santa Baby. <laughs> terrible being it's sort of seductive for a Christmas song, wouldn't you say? And, and it's hard to even sort it out. It's like, we might, I, might, I might not even notice that. The oddness of that collection, because we're so used to just having Christmas as a season. And what I'm gonna suggest is we need to reclaim the true meaning of Christmas. Now, I'm not one that preaches against Christmas and I want to undercut all the fun and rip everything out of Christmas. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think anyway. That's not going to change our society, right? But I like the things we do in a lot of senses. But I do think that as believers in Christ, we need to make sure that we are, that we are reclaiming the core meaning. And when, when we celebrate Christmas, what we are meaning is we are celebrating the grace of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And Christmas is where we celebrate his birth. Yeah, we celebrate his birth, but the, that's an example of God's grace to us, providing a savior for us. The, the Christmas message gets subverted sometimes, by even in good ways. For example, think about it. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. In other words, and this is carried even further by Elf on the Shelf who spies on us and we have to bribe him to get him to not tell Santa the bad things we do, right? <laughs> In other words, Christmas is about being good so we get gifts. You be good so you can get the goods. And unconditional love or grace, which is what Christmas is really about, becomes conditional and earned. Also, another way of looking at this is the idea that we can be good. That Christmas, because of the lights and the songs and the festivity, can inspire us to live as we all know that we should and we are all capable of. Right? A New York Times article writes, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we can be good on our own. And if we mu just muster up all the goodness inside of us and work together with other people who are mustering up all the goodness inside, we will have a world that lives in peace and harmony and goodness. Is that true? Has it been demonstrated historically? 
Not even close. It's not true. Oh, there are isolated instances where it works, but overall, the world is a cesspool of sin and strife and many horrible, horrible things that people do to each other. One of my favorite world leaders was a man named Vlaslav Havel. He was the uh, playwright from Czechoslovakia. Hi, Steve. Let's talk about Czechoslovakia. <laughs> and, um, but he was a playwright, and then he became a leader of what they called the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia when communism was overthrown. Then he became the president of Czechoslovakia. He wrote very profoundly. But he had some incredible insights because he actually lived under communism and then helped overthrow it and then saw what happened afterwards. And his conclusions were, he writes amazing stuff. But he concluded that neither technology nor a renewed state nor the free market alone was gonna work. He said, listen, I've lived under communism, terrible evil there. I've overthrown it, and we did some terrible things, and they did some terrible things, and now we're free. And human freedom is not always something we use to our benefit, do we? And Europe became a mass of greed and strife, and, and, and the Cold War, the, the communist monolith that held down the nations, now all these people groups were rising up and killing each other. And Havel said, it's not going to work. He said, pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy enough. He says a turning to and seeking of God is needed. He said the human race constantly forgets that he is not God. And when we think we are God, which is very often, we're dangerous. We're dangerous. So the message of Christmas is this, we're not God. The message of Christmas is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We can't save ourselves. We can't remake the world to be this beautiful place of peace and love without first being transformed by Jesus Christ and being transformed by the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit of creating a community of Christ followers. And then we change the world. We further this invasion of grace by preaching Christ and living it out in the world. In Christ, in Jesus, God provided intervention into humanity. Let's look at Matthew's account. Again, okay, it's a genealogy, and people respond differently to this. Some of you probably thought it was interesting, some of you probably ignored me until we finished reading, right? It's a genealogy. In other words, God provided intervention into humanity. People are living on earth, and here comes Jesus. Here comes God. Boom, right in the middle of it. Don't miss that. You may not want to read that genealogy again, but remember, Jesus came from a family. It was a nation called Israel, and then Judah, and plop, there you go. Jesus comes at the end, fulfilling all the promises. And we can't forget that. He's a historical figure. This is not a metaphor of peace and love and goodness. This is a person. One pastor tells a story of witnessing to a man 
And as they parted, he challenged a man to read the Gospels and investigate the life of Jesus. Well, this man called the pastor back really quickly, unexpectedly, because he was stunned. He opened up the Gospel of Matthew and read that it was a genealogy. And he was absolutely floored. And he told the pastor, he said, Jesus is actually someone who lived. Not only that, but he came from a full family background. There are people here, and I know I can see that some of these people weren't the greatest. He said even though Jesus was virgin conceived, the point is he came from this real background and he lived among real people, and it drew this person to Christ. Because he came as God's intervention into history. We needed God in person, and we got him. Another pastor tells of another letter he received. A different pastor, different. And the man writing the letter to him had heard one of his messages. And he was very resistant to the idea that the New Testament represents facts, history, that it really happened. He said he feels that it consists of mythical stories that were made up as metaphors to make us feel better and help us to learn how to live. Oh, Jesus said love one another and that's what we should do. And his reasoning was more honest, though, than many people that have that argument. He said, listen, I have no problem with other people believing in Jesus. That's good. But I think that those are mythical stories. I know they provide emotional comfort and inspiration to live better. So go ahead, everybody. Be Christians. But I can't believe that it's really true. Because if it's not actually true, then I'm under no obligation to believe it. But if... But this man understood Jesus, and he had read the stories. He said, if these are true, it requires everyone to believe in him. And he's right. If you believe what it says here is true about Jesus, there is no other way to be brought back to God. If these stories are true, it obligates everybody. There's no coincidence that people argue against the historicity of the Bible and the truth of the claims of Jesus, because that obligates them. And we are under obligation when we learn the claims of Jesus and the things that he did. He came into the real world. God came to rescue us. God came to, to invade us with grace, to give us what we couldn't get ourselves and do for us what we couldn't do. And we don't have an alternative. So first of all, God provided intervention into history. Second of all, in, Israel, in Jesus, God provided Israel's promised Messiah. Pro, Israel's promised Messiah. Verse 1, look at this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 16, Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Verse 17, there, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What, what, what Matthew's doing here when he talks about 14 generations, first of all, he's using perhaps, it, perhaps it's for memorization, but also anybody reading this knows that there are more than 14 generations involved in each of those. This is not a full genealogy, it's a selective genealogy. He's given the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And in using the symbolic 14, and what's God's number in the Bible? Seven. 14 is very significant because it's seven times two. And what he's saying is this, this person I'm writing about is the perfect fulfillment, the perfect person, all the promises, 
that have ever been made by God are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It says that in 2 Corinthians, by the way. It says, in Christ, in Jesus, all the promises of God are, yet, God are yes and amen. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all your hopes and all your dreams, Israel. He's the one. Now, what is a Messiah, by the way? Well, he was, Messiah means anointed one, an anointed person, an anointed leader, and he was the one who was going to save Israel from their enemies, deliver Israel, and raise up Israel as the leaders of all the earth in Jewish mind. There are so many different conceptions and understandings of Messiah, we could never get into all of it at a time like this. The bottom line is this. He was the one who would rescue Israel. He was the savior, the anointed one of Israel. And Matthew claims very clearly, unmistakably, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. By the way, who is Jesus Christ? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Christ is not his last name or his nickname. It means Jesus the Messiah. I, I had a Bible once that translated every time it said Jesus Christ, it said Jesus the Messiah. And I loved it because it, it kind of like reawakened my mind to say, I'm so used to that term, you know? When it's, and, but he is the Messiah of Israel. And he had to have the right genealogical credentials to be the Messiah. That's why we have this genealogy here. And this is why, why the early church fathers were so dogmatic that it's very, very significant. We are claiming Jesus is the Christ, therefore we have to have a genealogy to start out to demonstrate this. I mean, God chose the family of Abraham, as we see in, chapter, in verse 1, and he said, from you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was following up on a promise from Genesis chapter 3, where we saw where we see that uh, there is a promise that the seed of Eve, the woman, will, will save the earth. And then there is the promise that goes to Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob of Isaac's son. And then Jacob prophesies in Genesis 49 that Judah, the scepter of ruler in Israel, will rise from Judah. And then a thousand years later, more than a thousand years later, God narrows the focus again to King David. And at one point we read, being said to David, he says, God says to him, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. A descendant of David will rule on his throne and over his kingdom forever. So now David, and you see David being very prominent in this genealogy. David's the central person in this genealogy as far as Jesus' qualifications to be the Messiah. But the Hebrew nation struggled because they kept going through very difficult times, and they were saying, God, you promised a Messiah, and I'm looking around, and guess what I don't see? A Messiah. And if you read Psalm 89, it is a devastating psalm. The psalmist writes there, in sorrow and grief over the lack of a Messiah, and over the deterioration of the nation, he says, you have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish your offering forever and build your throne for all generations. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Lord, are you ever going to send this Messiah to deliver us? I don't feel delivered. 
and indeed they weren't. They were enslaved in bondage, in captivity. And as the Old Testament ends, Messiah has not come. It seemed that the scepter had, had departed from Judah. David's kingdom was defeated and lost. And maybe the promise of the Messiah was dead. So, with that background, with the despair and the disappointment, and that includes in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New, there were, there were alleged messiahs who came along that turned out not to be the Messiah, the Maccabees most notably. And so when we open up the New Testament, and the first thing we read is this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you see how that's not a boring genealogy? Can you see how that's like, wow! Whether I believe it or not, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. He is claiming to be who God has been talking about for thousands of years. So you can't start any better. He's the fulfillment of all. He's, he's the 14 by 14 by 14 perfection, the perfect human, the only God-man, the one in whom all of history centers and builds upon. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. So this is a very dramatic genealogy. We don't get it because we miss some of these types of details. Now, so we pre- he's presented as the Messiah of Israel. But the selective genealogy that we read is a little weird. Because if we read in here, we see things like this in verse 3. We see that Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. In verse 5, we read Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay? And we read this and we say, wait a minute here. Okay? Jesus clearly has the pedigree that he needs to be Messiah. Agreed? He passes. But see, the selective, I keep using that word selective genealogy. See, back then... Your genealogy was like your resume, especially if you're applying for Messiah. And so Matthew is giving his reference. Yes, I, uh, thank you for calling for a reference on Jesus of Nazareth. Let me give you his, re- his qualifications to be Messiah. But then he goes on and see, everything that is added to this on top of Abraham and David should be boosting the case for him to be Messiah. It would leave out things that would cast his background in a less than favorable light. I mean, people did that, especially royalty. In the, they, you know, King Herod is an example. Herod, who was in the Gospels, Herod the Great left out a whole chunk of his genealogy because I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed to be associated with these people. Who Herod could be ashamed of, I don't know. He was such a total lunatic, but, you know, I guess it's a, it's a king thing that we wouldn't understand. Matthew is writing this resume, and he should be giving Jesus a good reference. And he doesn't. If you 
ask someone to be a reference for you and they did what Matthew does, you'd be mad at them. <laughs> because Matthew includes people that aren't necessary and that do not necessarily raise esteem for Jesus' background. Thanks a lot, Matthew. I trust you with being my reference and you run me into the ground and drag me through the muck and I don't know if I'm going to get hired now. First of all, well, there's five women. So, in that day, that was unusual. It's not that it never happened, it's just that it didn't happen very often. It was very rare. And, and, and they were not needed in this genealogy as far as, you know, obviously if there's people giving birth, the women should be the heroes, right? They're the ones giving birth, they're the doing the begatting, but in Jewish genealogies, they weren't included. Women, is that right? Is that, that's yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about that saying begat, and yet we don't include women. What are we, nuts? But that's how it was. They were gender outsiders in that culture. They were disadvantaged in the religious realm and in the social realm had no legal rights and so forth. Um, on top of that, most of the women in here were Gentiles, such as Rahab and Ruth and Tamar. And uh, even Bathsheba, who's not named, was married to Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile. They were not Jewish. So he, these women are included and they're not Jewish. Thanks, Matthew, again. Thanks for your good reference. Next time I'm looking for a job, I'll call Buddy and ask for a reference. Because he's writing this stuff that could only do damage, you would think. Um, they were racial outsiders. They were gender outsiders. They were racial outsiders. I mean, I went into all this long study. I had to cut out about 90% of this message because there's so much here. But... Uh, the gods that these people served will curl your hair. It's just unbelievable. And so this is unbelievable. Now, they also were moral outsiders. And that's the most shocking thing if you know who, for example, Tamar is. In verse uh, 3. Um, Judah was the father. Scepter will rise in, would be in Judah, so we know that Judah's the right ruler, but the mother is Tamar. Tamar was, um, well, she was, she was incestuous in her relationship with Judah. And she was, uh, well, she pretended to be a prostitute to trick Judah and therefore bore, bore these two children. Now, so it's a shocking, immoral situation. My initial plan was to go through this genealogy and do a, a week on all these people, but I said, I'm not even going to, I'm not doing that. I'm not talking about Genesis 38. <laughs> Eric's laughing. <laughs> I, try, I was thinking of a way to get to where Eric could do that one. But <laughs> you ain't scared, yeah. <laughs> he was scheduling a vacation that week, so I had to do it. But, um, yeah, it's just shocking stuff we have. And then Rahab is a prostitute and a Canaanite. 
Well, here's the good news. We get to David. Jesse, verse six, the father of King David. Everybody lift up a cheer for David, yeah. A flawless part of this resume. I mean, this genealogy centers on David. This is the most important part, the most important name in the whole thing. David, the pristine center of the resume and of Jesus' heritage. Right? (laughs) Thank you, Matthew, again. Look what he does. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, yeah. Okay. Although he had 900 wives, what a nut. I'm telling you, Solomon, whose mother, in other words, David had Solomon with that mother. Now listen to this funny name for for Solomon's mother, David's. This is his mother. Had been Uriah's wife. What's your mother's name? Had been Uriah's wife. No, tell me your mother. He doesn't even use her name. Why? Because Matthew is, again, not being a good, a good friend as a reference. He's saying, David stole Uriah's wife, got her pregnant with Solomon, and because Uriah would not play the game and get David off the hook, he had him killed. David committed adultery and murder. That's what this is all about. Mother had been Uriah's wife. He could have said Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, but why did he include her in the first place? But he goes further as if he's intentionally pointing this very thing out. He doesn't want you to miss this. I want you to be sure to note what David did and what David was like. Hmm. And was Uriah like just a generic military guy, a generic soldier in David's army? What, who, what, was, what was Uriah to David? General, and one of his mighty men who'd gone with him when David was on the run from, from King Saul, running for his life. Uriah was one of the people who protected David and risked his own life. He was one of David's best friends. All right, the star of the resume, the most important name in the entire genealogy because it is the, the most specific Rensianic references are to being from the throne of David. And David is the key. And Matthew makes it known, David is the most flagrant sinner of all. Tamar, the the one who pretended to be a prostitute in an incestuous relationship, and Rahab the harlot, the worst sinner was David. So, and you can't, as I said, it's just pops out. I mean, Matthew's going along, and then this is in flashing lights. Boom, 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 boom. Of all the things to flash. (laughs) Of all the things. Here's the reason, the next line. This genealogical resume, Matthew's recommendation of Jesus for the Jewish Messiah, 
is actually a recommendation for more than one role. Messiah for Israel, yes, but Savior of the world. And because he's saying this Messiah for Israel is the Savior for all the world for their sin, he makes it very clear that nobody is without sin. And Jesus came to save the world. There are Gentiles, and there are women who are underprivileged, and, and, and David, the worst sinner of all, so you can't say, I'm related to David, I'm Jewish, I'm good with God. No! David wasn't even good with God, apart from his faith and being forgiven and repenting and trusting. <laughs> Savior of the world. I mean, you know the verse, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Matthew says, let me show you the world. And it centers in King David and formerly Uriah's wife and Tamar and Rahab and some of the other people there. We know Abraham was a scoundrel at times. We know Isaac did what his dad did. Jacob, the very word means he's a trickster. So what we have happening here is Jesus is the world's savior the savior of all people, not just the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew says, Matthew sits down and says, how do I recommend Jesus for Messiah and savior of the world at the same time? <laughs> Good question. Of course, they're the same person. I realize that in the Old Testament, Messiah is said to be going to impact the whole world. Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. To put that resume into one little package, wow, Matthew did it. The Holy Spirit said, Matthew, you've got to communicate these things together, and he did. And of course, Jesus provided a new humanity as a result. And Jesus, God sent his provision in Jesus, and there's a new humanity. Now, we're not going to go into this today. Because, again, it's a long genealogy with a lot of stuff. But suffice it to say that we learn something about living for Christ from this genealogy. We learn that God provided a savior for all humanity, and that included very flagrant sinners. It included royalty. It included common people, right? It included rich and poor and prominent and non-prominent. And, he's, and if you look at the verses that I have listed for you, it tells us that we are to be a people, that in Jesus Christ, we see all people. We see them through the eyes of Jesus. We don't see race, and we don't see ethnicity, and we don't see social class, and we don't see gender. And that is actually the testimony of the early church, that those things were being broken down through Jesus Christ. They're slave and free, and slavery ended. It was always because of somebody beating the drum that that's not how Jesus would want us to be. And we're still doing that today. We're still in the fight we are still helping in the evasion of grace to learning how we can be a people who see people as Jesus see them and eliminate those distinctions between people. And the last point I have on here is in Jesus, God provided reconciliation to himself. Notice at the end of this genealogy, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Kudos on the multimedia, unbelievably <laughs> skillful. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And again, 
Matthew goes off script and changes the way he words it. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. He, the last time he went off script like this was the wife of Uriah. Now he goes off script to say the mother of Jesus. Why? Because Joseph isn't really the father, is he? How does that happen? Well, Mary was virgin conception and I mean a supernatural conception and virgin birth in order to preserve the deity and the and the messiahship and the sinlessness of Jesus. Probably. Maybe he could have done it without a virgin birth, but he didn't, so it doesn't matter. But God steps in with his power and says, listen, there needs to be a God-man to be, as it says in the reference I gave you, one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Notice the repetition of man, because it had to be a man who was legitimately human and legitimately God, and God accomplished it through Jesus. Now Jesus is the mediator. He's the one who brings us to God. He's the one through whom we have reconciliation because we've sinned against God. And we can't get back on our own. That's grace, remember? We're saved by grace. Grace means I can't get back. I can't do it on my own. God sent Jesus, God-man, mediator between God and man. Because he is the God-man, he alone can bring us back to God when we place our trust in him. Because only God can do it, and only man should do it. The old, the old St. Anselm said, only God could, and only man should. Man should pay the price for his sin. Jesus the man did, but only God could, and Jesus God could and paid the price for us. That's what it means we're saved by grace. He did it for us. God and man came together in the person of Jesus Christ. Perfect love, perfect grace, perfect justice for sin. Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Oh yes, he intervened in history which we needed. God had, God had to rescue us himself. He, all these other things, we think of the law and we think of the prophets and we think of all the history. It's like, I got to go down, put some skin on and tackle this myself. No one else can do this. And God did. And, and, and he's the Messiah of Israel. He's the savior of all humanity. He proves it in the very same resume that Jesus was the Messiah and the savior of all. That there's nobody who is not a sinner and there's nobody who can't be forgiven and brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And he uses his power to, to enact a, a supernatural conception to protect Jesus from human contamination. Or just simply to show us that he's God and we're not. Either way. <laughs> and um, he's the mediator between us and God. I didn't know I need a mediator. You do. I didn't know I needed to be reconciled. Am I fighting with God? Yes. We're all fighting with God. All of us are born in sin. And you say, I don't fight with God. I love. Well, how many times do you do something you know that God said you shouldn't? I'm sure nobody here has ever done that. Right? Anyone here doubt God? Get, you know, anyone here say, I'm having a hard time? Anyone here just ever turn away from God? Some of us have a journey where we've gone up and down and up and down. We need, to be, we need the mediator, Jesus Christ. We need to place our faith in what he did on our behalf because that's grace. Invasion of grace. 
Oh, I love Christmas songs. I mean, poor grandma got run over by a reindeer. I guess that's not the best, but... <laughs> but we, I like it. I like the lights. I like the whole thing. But, you know, we need to recover the central meaning. And that is that God invaded this world with grace so we could be saved. And, and, he inv- and then he gave us his presence. It was God with us so that we could now walk in his presence and be the people who live by his values, which he shows in this genealogy. That our faith matters, but it's also something that nobody is outside of the realm of God's forgiveness and love and grace. That's a powerful message. I still don't know if I want Matthew to do my resume, my references, but he succeeded in a way that gives us fantastic truth. There's a a war going on in Israel, as you know, and um, Steve told me about a video last week that I wanted to tell you about. Uh, I believe what it's called is a... um, a Jewish, couple, a Jewish and Arab couple's testimony. And it, it talks about uh, how, something about living in Israel during, but it's a Jewish and Arab couple's testimony. If you type that in, and it talks about a couple, this is, this is very relevant because this is like the type of divisions that were, were here. And if you want to know what it is that the new humanity, how we can live in unity and harmony and love despite the war. There, there's a Jewish man married to a Palestinian woman. And they moved back to Israel when the war started. And their families are best friends. And they are best friends. And they're living in unity. Even when they were there and when they're not. It's, it, again, it, it's a powerful testimony. And they are all Christians. And the testimony is that it's because of Jesus that this Jewish family and Palestinian family are living in harmony and love as a family. Support, not just being supportive to their, to their kids, and their relatives, but they're legitimately living in, in oneness because of Jesus Christ. And that's what I see in this genealogy, the call to that type of life. When Jesus said, love your enemies, you know, right from the start we see an example of how this needed to be worked out. So a, a Jewish-Arab couple's testimony, and if just that alone should pop it up, where you can see that the, the context. It's a 28-minute video. I didn't write it down because I'm scatterbrained. <laughs> but um, you might find great encouragement in knowing that people can come together even in the harshest of conditions when Jesus is at the core. And that's the, who we are called to be. And that is the real meaning of Christmas. Not that Christmas lights and Santa baby can inspire us to live right because it doesn't. <laughs> Father, thank you for the message. I, so it's a strange thing to read a genealogy, but there's more exciting stuff in here than we could cover in, in who knows how long. It's just incredible. The whole history of a nation, the whole history of a people, and the whole history of your, of your son Jesus. Thank you for this life-changing genealogy. Changed our lives because Jesus came changes our lives because we see things that that tell us that we are well we need to live your values in this world lord and we see to this very day the division the harm the hatred and we see that in jesus your grace has invaded 
place to people here, and that's the church, and we are the church. Help us to be faithful carriers of that grace, of the message of the gospel of Jesus, and also of the values that you hold for humanity. That we will break down walls and barriers between people, and we will demonstrate the grace that you showed when you came the first time to give your life for us, Jesus. I pray that if there's somebody here who has not trusted in that one mediator between you and them, that they will trust now and say, Jesus is my mediator. I will allow him to restore my relationship with God to its rightful place. And I pray they will do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we uh, bring the service to a close.